from WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Martin Luther King Jr. Day is a week away, and the Louisiana Fair Housing Action Center is set to honor his legacy with an upcoming summit titled Fit for a King. We learn about the event's panels on housing inequity and reproductive justice. But first, NASA's new multi-billion dollar spacecraft, Artemis One, successfully returned from the moon December 11th, taking the agency one step closer to getting U.S. astronauts back on the moon. This mission came after several initial delays due to engine problems and inclement weather. Much of that rocket was built here in Louisiana at the Michoud Assembly Facility in New Orleans. A second mission as soon as 2024 would be a crewed flight around the moon. The third as soon as 2025 would take that crew in the Orion spacecraft in for a moon landing. We spoke with Michoud Assembly Facility Director Lonnie Dutre before the first launch. Lonnie, thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's glad, glad to be here. Let's start with a little bit of the history of the Mishu facility's relationship with NASA. Uh, what makes this facility uniquely equipped to build rockets? Well, it was built in the 1940s to support the World War II effort, building some cargo uh, planes and then in Korean War, building some tank engines. But in September of 61, uh, NASA took control of the facility. By the way, we celebrated our 60th anniversary uh, this past year. As you can imagine, these huge uh, boosters for these these rockets, you can't uh, haul them over over roads. You have to ship them by by barge. During the shuttle era, we built all the external tanks at Michoud. Now, the external tanks are basically the fuel tanks. There's no propulsion. So they were built and shipped directly to Kennedy to be mounted to the shuttle, the orbiter, and launched. But today, we're kind of back to the future, you know, building core stages for the Artemis program at Michoud. Uh, the first one we built was shipped to Stennis Space Center. It was tested, put it in the big test stands and uh, tested to make sure all the systems perform as as uh, designed. And then it was shipped to Kennedy Space Center where it uh, was stacked with the Orion crew capsule in a second stage in the solid rocket boosters. And that's what's at the pad today. When you look at uh, Artemis One on a launch pad, what what segments are you looking at thinking that's the Louisiana Touch, that's Mishu right there? Well, the core stage, which is the tall booster that's in the middle at the lower end of the of the rocket, uh, is at Michoud. Um, the Orion crew capsule, the pressurized crew capsule is also built at Michoud. Um, there's portions of the launch abort system that's built at Michoud. And we're currently tooling up to build a more powerful upper stage. So if you... Uh, it's hard on a radio interview to have a picture to point out, but if you look at the solid rocket boosters on the side of the rocket, which are very uh, similar to the space shuttle uh, solid rocket, uh, they that big orange round piece that goes from the bottom of the rocket almost to the tip, a little bit above the tip of the solid rocket motors or the core stage, all that's built at Michoud. And then again, the Orion crew capsule is built at Michoud, which the astronauts will be on on, on Artemis II. Um, and again, parts of the launch board system. So we're, we're very proud of that. And then when we build the upper stage, we'll be building, you know, a, a good portion of the rocket right there at Michoud. My guest is Michoud Assembly Facility Director Lonnie Dutre. You know, Lonnie, the, um, this is a massive project. It's, it's three phases and really more, as I understand it. You've got 
you know, the the first launch, which is just, you know, circling the moon, unmanned, the manned, and then the, the flight after where the astronauts will actually step on the moon. But you're even building beyond that. What's what the next step will be for for this this massive program? Were there any challenges along the way um, getting ready just even for Artemis One? Oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, this is the first build of this rocket. So you know, anytime you do something for the first time, as lessons learned. Uh, so right now at Mishu, we have Artemis Two, the core stage, almost complete. Uh, that that will send humans back to uh, around, around the moon and pieces of Artemis three, four, and five. This first this first uh, mission is uncrewed, so it's the first time the whole rocket is integrated together with the crew capsule. We'll do a launch. It'll do the profile around the moon, and we'll have all that data collected. So we'll learn lessons that, uh, there too, right? In, in the launch countdown, as we launch, as we do the mission profile, so we'll take all that data for Artemis two, and we'll will tweak and improve so that we have crew, it's as safe as we can, we can make it for the crew. And, and one thing I want to say, the other thing historic with the crew is this will be the first time we have women going to the moon and the first uh, person of color, person of color going to the moon. So that's historic in of itself. If you think back to the Apollo mission, so that's going to be very exciting. We're also building what we call a gateway that's going to stay in continuous orbit around the moon. And I like to describe it like a mini space station. You know, it's not as complex as space station, but it, but it, it's orbiting the moon. So when the astronauts go to the moon, the capsule will dock to the gateway. They'll transition from the capsule into the gateway into the lander, and the lander can land anywhere in the moon. And then it comes back to the gateway, so it's reusable. The difference between Apollo and where we are today is Apollo. We had never gone to the moon. We went to the moon. We demonstrated we could do it. We had some some exploration of the moon. Then we came home. And this time we're going back to stay. We want to have eventually build a presence on the moon. So have a moon base. And we, we're currently uh, doing all the engineering to figure out how we would live on the moon and actually build moon bases on the moon. And then from there, sustainably on the moon, go to Mars. I always try to think back, you know, early in our existence on Earth, you know, ex- explorers would go out and explore you know, to them, it was like going to the moon, right? Going to the West, you know, out West when nobody's ever been there or sailing across the ocean. So we've always been explorers. This is our ocean, right? We're going to the moon uh, and then on to Mars. So it's, it's uh, that's the real contrast between Apollo and what we're do- doing today is that sustainability. We want to go there, we want to stay there, live there, and then move on to Mars. Still reaching out into the final frontier, a little further out yes. into the final frontier, <laughs> a little further out. You know, I, I, I'd like to to um, to get from you what what launch day is is like around there. Do you watch it any differently than than the average person? I would I would say I do uh, to see it. And in, in, as you said earlier, to know that you, you have touched it. You know, and we like to say there's a lot of fingerprints on that rocket from people at Mishud, right? We built it, a lot of it. And, you know, it's a little bit of a little bit of anxiety. You know, everything's working because, you know, everything in it. Right. So your mind's going through all the stuff. Melana, you, you've had a 32 year career supporting human space flight at Mishu. Uh, you were also assistant director of Center of Operations at Stennis Space Center. You've had other positions. 
You, you touched on it a little bit, but, but how have you seen this U.S. space program change over your time involved, and, and where do you see us heading? Well, we've, you know, uh, we've gone to the moon, and, you know, I was 10, <laughs> so, but, you know, uh, when I got out of college, uh, I had an interview um, with a company that was doing the testing for the space shuttle main engines, and I went and I happened to see a test and I was hooked, right? It's like, wow, this is really, really cool. So um, at that time, we were flying the shuttle, assembling the International Space Station, finishing that up, sending astronauts in what we call low Earth orbit, uh, doing experiments. It was really cool. Um, but to see us go back to the moon, this is the kind of the, the things that I try to tell the younger workforce is when I came into the sh shuttle program, it was pretty much mature. And I, and I heard, you know, at that time with the more <laughs> senior people, which I am now, talking about how cool it was starting up, being there the first time we launched. And so I, I try to relay that to the younger folks here. Is this is a new endeavor, right? A new mission. You're here for the first launch. You're here for the genesis of where we're going and where, where we're going to be. So, you know, remember that and cherish it because when you get down the road in your career, you can look back and tell the next generation, yeah, I was there when we were, all the challenges were there. We had to get everything with we the first launch. So it's so the, to answer your question specifically, going back to the moon is putting us back out into deep space. And then the plan is to, to live on the moon, exist in off planet, and then going to Mars is pushing the, the envelope from Apollo. So it's getting further out in the deep space. So that's going further than we've gone before. And Mishu you know, planning to be a part of every step all the way. Absolutely. So, you know, Mishu is a, uh, I call it the gym, you know, Louisiana, New Orleans East. It's, it's, we supported the Apollo program, the external tank for the sh shuttle program and now the Artemis program. So all human space flight has gone through Mishu. Uh, we've had a part in it and we've celebrated our 60 years and I'd like to see us go another 60. All righty, Lonnie. Lonnie Dutre is director of the Michoud Assembly Facility in New Orleans, where rockets are being built to take man back to the moon and beyond. Lonnie, thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me, Karen. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Martin Luther King Jr. Day is a week away, and to honor King's legacy of fighting against racial injustice, the Louisiana Fair Housing Action Center is set to host a summit titled Fit for a King. The Wednesday event will pay tribute to King while also offering panels on housing inequity and reproductive justice. Here to tell us more about the summit is the executive director of the Louisiana Fair Housing Action Center's Fit for a King Summit, Kashana Hill. Kashana, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Give us some more details about the summit. Who who are the panelists and, and what will they be addressing? Absolutely, thank you. So we do um, schedule this conference every year as a way to honor Dr. Martin Luther King's legacy of working for equitable housing access uh, and housing justice. And so this year, the conference will be held on Wednesday, January 11th from 9 until 12.30 p.m. Uh, it's a virtual conference, and we're really excited to have a conversation around connecting housing injustice, segregation, and health inequity. So 
we're going to have panels uh, on topics including fair housing as a reproductive justice issue, uh, the limits of home ownership as a strategy to build black wealth, fighting and advocating for safe homes for all Louisianians. Uh, and then we're also going to have a keynote discussion uh, with uh, Linda Villarosa, who is a noted writer and journalist who has done some great work to connect uh, housing access to health inequity. Now, you've already mentioned Linda Villarosa, her 2018 New York Times Magazine article on maternal and infant mortality caused an awakening around discrimination in the healthcare system. Tell us a bit more about what she unveiled in her article and, and how that applies to the overall theme of the summit. Absolutely. Well, the article um, really um, not only laid bare some of the ongoing uh, systemic inequities in our health systems, particularly as uh, those inequities impact Black birthing people, um, but the article also spotlighted the work um, of an incredible uh, member-owned doula collective here in New Orleans. Um, and so we're really happy to have an author who has so much knowledge knowledge about the ways in which uh, systemic injustice create inequities for Black people here in New Orleans, right? And so we'll be able to take sort of a national and very local view uh, of these issues and the ways that they play out in communities of color really across the country. And so in addition to Ms. Villarosa, who will be our keynote speaker, we will also have uh, representation from people working with uh, Black birthing people here in New Orleans on our reproductive uh, reproductive justice panel. Um, so the co-founder of the Birthmark Doula Collective, Latona Giwa, um, who was prominently featured in that New York Times Magazine article, will be one of our panelists. And we are always so honored <laughs> to be able to work with uh, birthmark because the services that they provide um, are so invaluable for community members. Now, the subheadline of the event is shocking and inhumane, connecting housing and justice, segregation and health inequity. What are the main connections between housing and health inequity specifically here in Louisiana? Absolutely. So uh, that title actually comes from a direct quote from a speech that Dr. King gave um, as he was discussing, right, the need for equitable housing access and, and housing justice. And so here in Louisiana, we see the impacts of um, housing injustice play out on uh, people's health in a variety of ways. For instance, we know that um, Substandard living conditions contribute, for instance, to high rates of asthma and emergency room visits for children across Louisiana. Uh, here in Louisiana, we have one of the highest rates of emergency room visits for children in the country, and we can connect those visits uh, in many instances back to children experiencing substandard living conditions. And so we see the ways in which really the lack of regulations around rental housing, for instance, can cause adverse health effects. We're speaking with the executive director of the Louisiana Fair Housing Action Center's Fit for a King Summit, Kashana Hill. Well, for anyone who attends the summit, whether they, they're in search of, of resources or just hoping to learn more about their community, what do you hope that they learn? What do you hope they take away? 
you know, we, we always uh, welcome the opportunity for people to engage with the work of the Fair Housing Action Center. Um, but in addition, you know, the, the overall goal is to, in addition to honoring uh, Dr. King's legacy, to really bring people into the discussion about uh, housing justice and the fight for housing justice. You know, I, I do this work um, because I'm clear that uh, the ongoing inequities that we see across the United States really all have their roots in this country's past history of racist and discriminatory housing policy. And uh, that history has never fully been addressed or redressed with the same amount of resources that went into creating, right, segregated housing communities. And so we really need to be having that same level of energy and resources dedicated to fixing housing segregation and ensuring equitable access. And we believe that this summit, and we really hope that this summit is a starting point for people who may not have engaged in that fight before. Um, it's an educational tool and it provides, we hope, a basis for people being able to clearly understand that housing justice needs to happen in order to have any other sort of justice across the United States. Executive Director of the Louisiana Fair Housing Action Center's Fit for a King Summit, Kashana Hill. Kashana, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Just a heads up, our next conversation might not be appropriate for some younger listeners. A new law in Louisiana is aiming to prevent young people from accessing porn online by prompting them to present their government ID to a third-party site before they can access porn websites. Jason Kelly, Associate Director of Digital Strategy at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, joined NPR's Andrew Limbong for more. All right, so what was your initial reaction to this law? Louisiana, you know, is the first state to implement this specific piece of legislation, but is there, like, similar laws out there? There aren't. It was somewhat surprising to everyone who works in the space because I think the law went somewhat under the radar and suddenly it was being reported on and we thought, oh, wow, this is something we hadn't heard of before. But it isn't new. Mm -hmm. There were previous laws, in specific a federal law called COPA, the Child Online Protection Act, which is about 20 years old now and is no longer in effect because it was deemed unconstitutional. So it's not a total shock hmm. that this exists, but it was a little surprising to those of us who had been following these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Now, what concerns should people have about this requirement to submit sensitive data to enter these sites? I mean, you're getting kicked to a third-party site. How reassured should one feel that their information isn't being collected or retained? It's reasonable for people to be concerned that their data is going to go somewhere that they don't expect. People have been surprised that information that they've shared with websites has gone places that they didn't expect it to in the past, you know, many times, whether that's because of a data breach or because of third-party data brokers. In this case, the law explicitly asks that companies who do collect this information to verify age don't retain it and don't share it. But it's difficult for people to confirm that that's happening. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, if you want to push back and say a company has done 
something with my data that they weren't supposed to, you have to show damages. So it's a little bit difficult to take a company to court and push back if they do collect that information. Uh, and there's bigger problems really with the fact that people are going to be sharing their information with sites that they've never heard of, whether it's the site itself or the third hmm. party. Um, you know, you might trust that a large site like a Pornhub or something like that has a comprehensive solution with a third party verifier that has its entire business based around age verification or, or identity verification. But when you go to a smaller site that maybe most people haven't heard of or you've never even seen before. is niche. Yeah. Exactly. A niche site. Yeah. And there are plenty of them. There are plenty of niche mm -hmm. pornography sites online. You're not going to know really how to trust that verifier or that site. And this is a particularly scary area for people because pornography is already used to collect private data about people to kind of trick them into downloading malware. And now these sites have a legal basis for asking a person who's visiting a niche porn site to upload their identity information. And so you can imagine what happens if a site collects that information and could potentially share it. Of course, you would be able to sue the company, but it's not always going to be easy, especially if that company is perhaps based outside of the U.S. and is using that information for blackmail or identity theft or anything else. You name it, the concerns are real. And so when you do drive people from a popular site to further and further kind of niche sites, um, and that could mean that those sites are sharing potentially child sexual exploitation material or other material that's made non-consensually because there are just sort of fewer rules the further away you get from those platforms. The backers of the law say that it'll prevent children from watching porn, right? Um, I think the obvious question is, does it? <laughs> I don't think anything prevents children from watching porn. Um, I think <laughs> it's going to be impossible to prevent anyone from doing something online that they really, really want to. Where there's a will, there's a way. And there's a lot of will for young people to look at sexually explicit material. Yeah. Are there like good effort brainstorming ideas being thrown around about preventing children from accessing porn websites? There are all sorts of uh, parental supervision apps that you can add to your phone. These aren't perfect, but they aren't as bad as wholesale blocking of content and forcing you know, millions of people to share their private data. Because at least in this way, you can decide for your own household what your child can and can't see. And you can also look at the history of what they've seen. Yeah, I mean, the difference there, right, is that that's a consumer end solution to the problem, right? Versus a, yeah, at the distributor side. If you're thinking about ways that the internet itself sort of within its infrastructure can be better about allowing young people to access or not access certain types of content. It's not clear that there is a better solution. Um, age verification is something that's been thrown around for a long time, and it doesn't really pass muster for a lot of privacy advocates. And it's not the case that there is an alternative. It's, it's really up to the parent um, to have conversations with their kid and to really make sure that they know what's happening on the devices that their teenager is using. So it is kind of up to the consumer at this point. And I don't know that that's the worst thing in the world. 
That was NPR's Andrew Limbong speaking with Associate Director of Digital Strategy at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Jason Kelly. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. Thanks to our guests, Executive Director of the Louisiana Fair Housing Action Center, Kashana Hill, and Mishu Director, Lonnie Dutre. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. Our digital editor is Caitlin Omholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman and Aubrey Procell. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Historic New Orleans Collection.